Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the coverage of the recent debt ceiling extortion, in which much of the press equated the far right with the progressive left in their opposition to the Biden-McCarthy deal, when there is no comparison between the white supremacist Christian nationalist insurrectionists in the House Freedom Caucus and the Progressive Caucus of the Democratic Party that had 40 of its 100 members vote against the deal, while 81% of the Freedom Caucus voted against the deal, with many calling for a default that would have devastated the economy. Joining us is Peter Dreyer, the E.P. Clapp Distinguished Professor of Politics and Chair of the Urban and Environmental Policy Department at Occidental College. His books include Place Matters, Metropolitics for the 21st Century, and The 100 Greatest Americans of the 20th Century, a Social Justice Hall of Fame. And we will discuss his article at Talking Points Memo, Media Coverage Must Stop Equating Congress's Far Left and Far Right. Then we'll examine the Republican field that met over the weekend in Iowa as they lined up against the front-runner and no-show Trump for the Republican presidential nomination. Joining us to discuss former Vice President Mike Pence's appearance on a Harley-Davidson at the Roast and Ride event in Des Moines is Tom Lobienko, a national politics reporter at The Messenger covering the 2024 presidential race. He has covered Mike Pence from the State House to the White House for Business Insider, the Associated Press, CNN and the Indianapolis Star, and is the author of Piety and Power, Mike Pence and the Taking of the White House, and we will discuss how if Pence told the whole truth about Trump, he would have a much better chance than sticking to his current cowardly strategy of not saying anything about the man who tried to have him lynched by an insurrectionist mob. Then finally we'll explore the global authoritarian drift away from democracy as right-wing leaders in Poland, Hungary, Turkey and India take over the media, eviscerate the courts and demonise the opposition and discuss the massive demonstrations in Poland on Sunday against the country's right-wing government that has taken over the judiciary and targeted the opposition as communist sympathisers or Russian agents. Joining us is Jan Kubik, a professor of political science at Rutgers University and professor in the School of Slavonic and East European Studies at the University College London. His books include The Power of Symbols Against the Symbols of Power, Post-Communism from Within, Social Justice, Mobilization and Hegemony, and 20 Years After Communism, The Politics of Memory and Commemoration. And before we begin, I would like to thank our sustaining listeners whose continued and growing support for background briefing enable us to remain independent without corporate underwriting, commercials, paywalls, or constant fundraising as we deliver a daily news analysis by seeking out the most knowledgeable experts closest to the scene to explore three or more major stories and issues in depth with our sound bites and spin. As a dangerous and devious serial liar and selfish sociopath continues to haunt our politics and poison our social discourse, whose angry and armed followers assault our democracy and attempt to impose a tyranny of the minority in lockstep with their fraudulent wannabe mob boss and Fuhrer, your monthly donations, large and small, at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or at our tax-deductible non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation at publictruthmedia.org contribute to an informed citizenry needed to protect and defend the will of the majority as we work to build a reality-based community 
in post-truth America. And joining us now is Peter Dreyer, who's the E.P. Clapp Distinguished Professor of Politics and Chair of the Urban and Environmental Policy Department at Occidental College. His books include Place Matters, Metro Politics for the 21st Century, and The 100 Greatest Americans of the 20th Century, A Social Justice Hall of Fame. And he has an article at Talking Points Memo, Media Coverage Must Stop Equating Congress's Far Left and Far Right. Welcome to Background Briefing, Peter Dreyer. Thank you, Ian. So, uh, Peter, I certainly noticed what you are writing about, that uh, in this recent debt ceiling crisis, which the press certainly treated as an incredible crisis that we're heading for the abyss, and uh, we were finally, at the last minute, rescued by sensible centrists and and bipartisanship and compromise, and that basically the problems were with the far right and the hard left, which is the way the New York Times described the divisions here. But the point you're making is that there's a hell of a lot of difference between the Republican far right on the House Freedom Caucus and uh, those that were being tarred on the on the left of the Congress as being far left. Yeah, I mean, this not just the New York Times. It's almost every mainstream media outlet in the country has this uh, phony symmetry, this phony balance between what they call the far left and the far right or the the hard left and the far right, um, as if they're like equidistant from the center, right? So what that means is that if you had a, a scale of one to 100, with uh, zero being the most uh, conservative and 100 being the most uh, progressive and 50 being in the middle, that somehow uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene is as far from the center as... Um, as uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, which is complete ri- ridiculous. Uh, you know, I mean, Ocasio-Cortez and the other members of the Progressive Caucus, who include, you know, a, a couple of socialists like Cory Bush and AOC and uh, and Congressman Bowman and uh, and Con- Congressman Cesar from Texas, a few others, um, you know, and includes progressives like. Um, Jan Schakowsky, uh, and includes some liberals like um, uh, Nancy Pelosi. So they're, you know, they're mainstream social Democrats for the most part, uh, even the ones that call themselves socialists. Whereas, you know, people like Marjorie Taylor Greene and um, and Matt Gaetz um, and that ilk of uh, right wing freedom caucus Republicans, uh, you know, they're they're neo fascists. They don't believe in democracy. Um, you know, they have um, uh, nothing bad to say about the insurrectionists on January 6th. Um, they, um, they're anti, uh, anti-Semites, they're Christian nationalists, they're white supremacists, they rub shoulders with the, the Proud Boys willingly. Um, and uh, they deny that the 2020 election was legitimate, and they've taken steps to overturn it. So these aren't conservatives, these are extremists, these are reactionaries, these are neo-fascists. And so the, the idea that somehow you can equate or balance the, the progressive left wing of the Democratic Party with the, uh, the far right wing of the Republican Party as if they balance each other out is absurd. And it also undermines the reality that 
uh, our American politics has has skewed to the right, not because the Democrats and the Republicans are feuding, but because the Republicans have uh, basically lost faith in democracy. Um, and so to cost, you know, to seek a bipartisan solution to the debt ceiling or anything else, when the compromise is supposed to be between social Democrats on the left and neo-fascists on the right, it's kind of a stupid way of looking at how American politics works. But that's kind of the formula that the mainstream media use, and it's completely um, unrealistic and uh, and absurd. And in the vote for the deal that was made between President Biden and Speaker McCarthy, as your article points out, Peter Dreyer, that 40 of the 100 members of the Progressive Caucus voted no, while 34 out of 42 of the far-right Freedom Caucus voted no, mm-hmm. and that's 81% of them. But you have to add to the list that you gave about how extreme they are on rubbing shoulders with white supremacists and Christian nationalists and anti-Semites, etc. Mm-hmm. They also, many of them, during this debate over the debt crisis, were encouraging default uh, following in the steps of their Fuhrer, Donald Trump, who called for a default. Mm-hmm. So Great. on top of that, you're talking about people who were willing and, and wanting to destroy the American economy and not to mention the global economy. I mean, how radical is that? Well, you know, they're immune to suffering, basically, <laughs> except they're corporate benefactors. They don't want them to suffer, the super rich. So, you know, it's, I mean, the word radical has been abused over the last couple of decades. I mean, when I was, you know, in high school and college and, and started working, a radical meant somebody who was a, a leftist um, who believed in, you know, equality and justice and fairness. Um, and uh, now that word gets used to describe Marjorie Taylor Greene and Matt uh, Gazer and people like that, you know, who are, you know, they're not radicals. They're, they're extremists. They're not, they're not even, they don't even believe in democracy. Like I said before, so to have a fair debate when, uh, between two different points of view, when one believes in the rules and the other doesn't, it's like, you know, if a, uh, if a batter is up to bat and, and, and there's three strikes and he says to the umpire, um, can you give me a fourth strike? And the umpire says, sure. I mean, it's, you know, it's you got to believe in the rules, or the game doesn't work, and uh, and the right wing doesn't believe in the rules. You know, and the, you know the Democrats have their own centrists. You know, there are people in the Democratic Party in Congress, like Henry Quaylar of Texas and Abigail Spanberger of Virginia, who are centrists or moderates. Um, there are no Republican moderates. No, maybe, maybe Brian Fitzpatrick, a congressman from Pennsylvania, but all the others are reactionaries, you know, and some of them, many of them are, as I said, white uh, nationalists, Christian uh, nationalists and uh, and anti-Semites. So the center of the Republican Party, you know, is almost like they believe in democracy, whereas the center of the Democratic Party is, you know, somewhere between Nancy Pelosi and and Jan Schakowsky, and it's it's a reasonable social democratic view of the world. Most of the rest of the advanced capitalist world recognizes that social democracy or democratic socialism is not far left. It's um, 
It's a way of thinking about the world that promotes and public policy that promotes more fairness and wants to do it more quickly. Um, but it's not, you know, it's not the it's not the same as somebody who worships at the altar of the Proud Boys. I mean, there's there's no group on the left that is the equivalent of the Proud Boys, even though Donald Trump kept talking about Antifa. You know, well, you know, the Proud Boys is a mass movement. Antifa is a couple of dozen people. Right. So that's that's not a that's not a reasonable comparison. And I doubt whether the Antifa people would vote Democrat. Oh, they're uh, anarchists, aren't that's they? That's true. I mean, yeah. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> but, you know, at, at some point, either you're um, if you believe in democracy or you don't. You believe in the rules of, you know, uh, uh, people have a right to vote. There should be a peaceful transition of power when there's an election um, and uh, and people have the right to protest, but not to kill people. Um, and if you don't believe that, then you're a terrorist. You're a fascist terrorist. And that's the kind of politics that has become almost mainstream uh, in the Republican Party in Congress. Well, I don't mean to give the Antifa a bad name because we need anti-fascists. Well, but we need oh, anti—we <laughs> need anti-fascists yeah. when the fascists are on the rise, don't we? Yes, right. But um, we need anti-fascists that know how to talk to people who don't agree with them. <laughs> right. And uh, Antifa doesn't know how to do that. Right. But what's your sense then, just in the last couple of minutes here, Peter Dreyer? That do you think that the Democrats can? run against this reactionary party that's flirting with fascism? Two of the main top candidates that the Republicans have for the presidency, Ron DeSantis and Donald Trump, are both outright fascist. One, Trump is a natural fascist who adores totalitarian dictators, and the other guy is choosing a fascist path with his anti-woke crusade. Well, you know, in the last election, the fascists and their friends did pretty poorly in the 2022 midterm elections. Um, you know, the vast majority of Americans don't agree with almost anything they believe in. They have a, a cult following, but you know, they, they, ha they have a lot of money and, um, and charisma sometimes works. And uh, if nothing else, Donald Trump is charismatic. Um, DeSantos much less so. So I don't think he's, going to be able to defeat uh, Trump. But um, so if the Democrats, you know, I mean, right now, the Democrats are going to have uh, an 80 year old running for um, for president. But if you look at um, Donald Trump, if, you, if the, people can get this message across, Donald Trump is a lot less healthy, both medically and emotionally and psychologically than than uh, than Joe Biden. So if if if, um, if there's a debate about age, and, and judgment and wisdom and physical capacity to endure an election and to be present uh, on public policy, then uh, Joe Biden's going to win. Right. But, and Biden, Biden uh, by the way, tripped and fell the other day at the Air Force Academy. And, and I've mentioned uh, that the Democrats are hanging by a thread if Biden falls. Well, I've been proven wrong that it was no big deal. You know, it doesn't. Well, the Republicans are trying to make it. A, Republicans sure. are trying to make it a big deal. Yeah, but you know, he fell and he got up, and he fell because there was a 
a black sandbag, you know, in his way. You know, <laughs> he I got I mean, sandbag, I'm, right? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, I fall into the while, you know, I'm, right. I'm pretty healthy. So, um, you know, probably most of your listeners fall occasionally. Um, but, you know, they're going to make a big deal out of it. But the, the answer to your basic question here is, you know, the American people, for the most part, you know, do not support the values and the policies that the right wing Republican neo-fascist white supremacists, you know, Christian nationalists, anti-Semites believe. Um, but, you know, a lot of people do, you know, if they're, they're going to run on, uh, you know, issues that uh, are hard to categorize, you know, like, you know, uh, dealing with uh, uh, critical race theory or abortion uh uh, where there's no there's no likelihood that people are going to want to have abortions after three weeks, but that's what they're saying. You know, it's kind of crazy, but you know they can win some votes on that, no doubt. And in, and in safe Republican districts, they can uh, they can slide easily into into office. But um, you know, the, that's why the media has to do a better job of not just making it sound like. If it turns out to be Biden versus Trump, which is likely to be, that you've got sort of a reasonable liberal Democrat versus a conservative Republican. You've got, you know, you've got a, a social Democrat liberal Biden and you've got a neo-fascist president, uh, former president Trump. And, you know, for the first time ever when Trump was president, the mainstream media started using the word liar to talk about Trump. And so they sort of got it. You know, but uh, but, you know, that CNN uh, town meeting he did a couple of weeks ago and the way they're covering him now, they're covering the spectacle of Donald Trump without the danger of Donald Trump. And I think uh, it's if the media is going to be responsible in this next in this coming election season, you know, they can't just uh, report about the spectacle of Donald Trump, all the the rallies and. Even if they're saying he's lying, they've got to do more than that. They've got to, you know, make it sound like, you know, the, the truth, which is, is Donald Trump, uh, does he believe in democracy? And he doesn't. And that's that's got to be the message. Well, Peter Dreyer, thank you very much for joining us here today. Okay, Ian, my pleasure. And again, I've been speaking with Peter Dreyer, who's the E.P. Clapp Distinguished Professor of Politics and Chair of the Urban and Environmental Policy Department at Occidental College. His books include Place Matters, Metro Politics for the 21st Century, and The 100 Greatest Americans of the 20th Century, a Social Justice Hall of Fame. And he has an article at Talking Points Memo, Media Coverage Must Stop Equating Congress's Far Left and Far Right. We're going to take a brief station break and back examining the Republican field that met over the weekend in Iowa as they lined up against the front-runner and no-show Trump for the Republican presidential nomination. Yes, some is good and some is bad. Brother, keep your faith on hand on every side. On each street corner you will find there are people in this place on every side. There's a Baptist ministry in the churchyard down the street on every side. 
Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Tom Lobienko, who's a national politics reporter at The Messenger, covering the 2024 presidential race. He has covered Mike Pence from the State House to the White House for Business Insider, the Associated Press, CNN, and the Indianapolis Star, and is the author of Piety and Power, Mike Pence and the Taking of the White House. Welcome to Background Briefing, Tom Lobienko. Hey, Ian. Good to be back. Thank you so much. Well, thanks for joining us, Tom. And you were in Iowa over the weekend for the annual Roast and Ride event in Des Moines, hosted by Iowa Senator Joni Ernst. And Mike Pence uh, showed up on a motorcycle. So describe the scene, if you will. (laughs) Yeah. So uh, this is what the, you know we in the industry like to call one of the cattle calls of the presidential campaign, where almost all of the candidates show up. Notably, Trump did not show up to this. Uh, and uh, the day started, it was last Saturday, it started on the uh, Harley-Davidson shop uh, just outside of Des Moines. And, uh, you know, Pence was there, second lady, former second lady, Karen Pence was there with him. Senator Ernst uh, was there and it was very hot. And probably felt like it was like 90 degrees going on 100 uh, out in the Midwest sun. And if you look at Pence started, uh, he led the pack out of there of uh, bikers. This was a this is a. a Regular uh, benefit they host for, it's a fundraiser for veterans. Um, and, you know, the funny thing is <laughs> Pence you know, made some comment that it was, you know, as he was you know, standing on the back of a pickup truck as he was about to launch uh, the, the ride to the Iowa State Fairground. You know, it's all pageantry, um, uh, as, as much of a campaign is. Um, but he made some comment that, this, you know, today is about the veterans. It's not about politics. And that's, you know... <laughs> Obviously not the case, because we wouldn't have been there if he wasn't talking about running for president, and which he he did. He officially filed the the paperwork on Monday, and he's going to launch Wednesday, June seventh. And um, you know, he, he I was sitting on the back of a pickup truck with uh, other members of the press corps, and we were facing backwards, you know, uh, um, you know, uh, leading that pack, getting footage. Um, through the farmland out in Iowa. Um, you know, Pence looked comfortable on the motorcycle. He's been doing this since you know, 2012 when he um, uh, took the baton from Mitch Daniels, the former governor of Indiana. Mitch Daniels used to do a uh, used to do a motorcycle ride, and Pence kind of picked that up. Um, you know, smooth riding through the through the farmland on the way into the Iowa State Fairground. Um, but that might be the smoothest ride he gets. This cycle because it's going to be a lot rougher after Wednesday. <laughs> and Wednesday he announces, of course, and uh, today, Monday, he filed papers. But at the GOP event, and Joni Ernst's roast and ride event in Des Moines on Saturday, Pence said, I believe we have to resist the politics of personality and the siren song of populism. I think a reference to Greek mythology might have gone over the heads of a lot of those people there uh, present. What did you think? <laughs> well, a couple of thoughts from inside the room for this. You know, I like to keep these things in context. I've been covering Pence for 12 years now, and I've been covering Trump for eight years, which 
is the longest I've covered anybody in politics. I mean, I used to, you know, cover state houses and governors and, you know, get a new one every four years or so. Um, and just a couple of things that I try to keep in mind as I'm looking at this. Pence, or Pence, well, we'll get back to Pence here in a second, but Trump is no longer at the peak of his power. He is not in the White House. I mean, it's it's sometimes it might be easy to forget that, you know, just, you know, four years ago, pre-pandemic, none of this would be happening. You wouldn't have had anybody running against him in, in a serious way. And of course, he was the incumbent back then and inside the White House. But, you know, back then, too, people were afraid to say anything about him. Republicans really were afraid to say anything about him. Basically, you either left the party, you know, you went the way of George Will and Bill Crystal. Um, you know, senators, people who, you know, years ago were considered the vanguard of conservatism, you know, would have been safe anywhere. Jeff Flake of Arizona, uh, you know, got drummed out of the party. You had the whole, you know, movement, never Trump movement. But now it's been like a, I don't think, I don't know, it's, it's not a course correction. And I don't know if you, you, you could say that it's snapped back to where it was before. And that was one of the old debates, whether things would kind of return to a pre-Trump era of the Republican Party. But there's room for other people not named Trump and not named Ron DeSantis, for that matter. And I think that's why you see this very roundabout way of answering your question. This is why you see people like Mike Pence saying, hey, we got to get over the politics personality. We got to move forward now. You know, that's no small part ironic coming from Mike Pence because he joined Trump and helped drive the politics of personality and this, and this you know, nationalist populism, this hard right, well, the conservative style of populism. And of course, we should not be, get that confused with populism on the left, which has also seen its own surge in the last decade or so. Um, it's funny to see him changing again. You know, really, that's what they all do. Pence, in particular, it's a little more jarring. You know, I guess the the question I'm looking at, when I'm trying to test when I'm out there in the field talking with people, is will this sell? Is anybody going to buy this? You know, will people show up to caucuses all across the state, starting you know, likely the end of next January or next February? The uh, the date has not been set yet. Uh, will they show up to support Pence? Or is this just sort of like a, hey, he's a nice guy. We like him a little bit, but, you know, we're ready for something completely new. Uh, And that has not been answered yet. So this is, I mean, you know, we're at the start of this thing. There's, There's a lot, a lot to be answered. Well, on Tuesday, of course, Chris Christie enters the race and Mike Pence enters the race on Wednesday along with Doug Bergam of uh, the governor of North Dakota. But Pence, in a recent uh, Monmouth poll, only 21% of Republicans viewed him favorably, with 47% unfavorable. So that's, uh, that's not looking good. No, it's not. Um, <laughs> I mean, if you're, if you're anybody in this field right now, obviously you want to be in the position that Trump is in. I mean, he is the front runner. He's the kind of sort of incumbent, you know, he himself is, you know, has flip flopped on whether he believes or what he says about the 2020 election. He's been all over the place with it as he is with most things. Um, But 
he still has the support of somewhere between like 30 and 40% of this hardcore loyalist. And, you know, with my, with my deepest apologies to the grateful dead, it's, you know, it's kind of like the deadheads. (laughs) They're always going to be with them. That's not going to change. But if you look at, you know, a hypothetical 100% of the Republican electorate, that leaves room for somebody else. And there's so many things that have to happen in order for that to work. You know, there has to be some kind of consolidation around the candidate, obviously. You know, at one point that was Ron DeSantis. That seems to have been slipping quite a bit uh, in the past few months. Um, you've seen other people like Vivek Ramaswamy, the, the pharmaceutical, former pharmaceutical executive, uh, who's gained some traction. Um, but if you're Pence, and I think this is, you know, when you talk to you know, the Republican strategists I talked to have done this for a while, they've done a number of campaign cycles, and they're advising some of the candidates. Um, there's a hope and an expectation that a couple of things. One, that Trump and DeSantis will just destroy each other, and that that visceral feud between them, which is involved you know, making fun of the way they eat. You know, it's a child food. It's a, it's a children's food fight in the cafeteria. You know, that was the type of thing which used to play a decade ago. I mean, that that caught people's attention back when Trump was still a novelty. There's a large number of people in the Republican electorate and the broader electorate who are just kind of done with that. You know, we've seen that. We're going on a decade of that now. And, and you know, that's where Pence is playing too. You know, this the so-called adult in the room, that's one of his his themes that he's trying to pitch. But, you know, the second piece really is uh, this serious legal trouble for Trump. And, you know, you really have to. And I think this plays in two ways. Number one, there is there there is an actual legal jeopardy for Trump here, depending upon how the special, the federal special counsel probe into classified removal, classified documents and Trump's role in January 6th, and also the Georgia election probe when he called down there and said, hey, just find me 11,780 votes to flip the election in my favor. You know, that's something people do. (laughs) Those, when that, when those start hitting it's going to be harder for people, well, theoretically at least, it will be harder for people to dismiss it as, you know, an ambitious New York prosecutor going after one of his businesses. Um, and that's where Republicans are really looking for an opening. It's those two places, really. But, Tom, when you mentioned the adults in the room, the one thing that I've found very troubling about about the Trump four years is that the adults in the room have never really come public and described what it was like with this reckless, incompetent, dangerous president so hopelessly out of his depth, flaying about. Mm. And, you know, I've had conversations with Miles Taylor, who was anonymous. Mm, yeah. He was in, in the White He was in the room mm. on a number of occasions as the chief of staff to Kirsten Nielsen, the head of Homeland Security, you know, describing scenes where Trump was talking about the wall that he wanted to build and describing how he wanted to have on top of the wall razor-sharp spikes so that the Mexicans would cut their hands and bleed and wanting the Marines to shoot pregnant Mexican women in the legs. And, of course, this upset 
the uh, chief of staff, General Kelly, a former Marine general, who said that's not what the Marines do. So you get these anecdotes about what it was like to deal with this crazy guy. And the thing that I find appalling about Pence is that he, he won't go there. In fact, on January the 5th, before the January 6th you know, attack on the Capitol, apparently Trump really laid into him in a vicious way. So that's what I don't understand is if he ran for the presidency saying, I was the adult in the room and described what really went on and how the adults tried to stop Trump from doing crazy stuff, even crazier stuff than he did, including starting wars, as General Milley has said, Mm. He uh, gave orders to the Pentagon to ignore unlawful orders at the, at the end of Trump's tenure. Do you think he would do better to really lay this out? Because I find it troubling that the so-called adults in the room have not done us a public service by describing how really dangerous and incompetent Donald Trump is and was. I mean, th- that is the central question for Pence as he enters this race. You know, he has a historic moment here. And, you know, presidential races are stories about people. That's how, that's how voters make up their decisions. What did these very important, powerful people do? What do they say they will do? Um, I mean, <laughs> among, the, among the many just, you know, really, you know, new and, and just very strange dynamics of this this political reality. I mean, we are so far away from, you know, the days of parties having, you know, running establishment candidates and, you know, donors, donors picking the candidates, you know, which was only really a decade or so ago. Um, you have a former president who painted a target on his vice president's back in a tweet on January 6th at 2.24 p.m. as the president's supporters, the then president's supporters were storming the Capitol, smashing police in the face with uh, shields and tons, smearing their own feces on the walls of the Capitol, trying to overthrow an election result. It is, as has been adjudicated now, as we've seen in in these numerous cases, Proud Boys, the Oath Keepers in particular. I mean, it was a it was a domestic terrorist attack, uh, and there's still a lot to come out on that. And, and you know, I mentioned all that as a way to get at the adult in the room question. Um, you know, one of the things I think about with Pence, and you know, we I don't know what he's going to do, and I don't I don't he is a very vexing politician to cover. He's a hard person to crack, and is really hard to figure out what he was what he will actually do. He's so scripted. He's very cloistered. Um, He's always been that way. But one theme I've noticed with him is he tends to be an actions kind of guy. You know, for all the uh, uh, for all the niceties he says, and you know, the the, the pie-ins to uh, you know, God, America, apple pie, et cetera. um, He has done something which a number of the other former Trump people have refused to do. You know, in particular, I think of John Bolton. Um, you know, Bolton puts out a book blasting Trump and, you know, describing all of these things. And I'm sure that, you know, it, the best I can tell, it's true. It, it matches my reporting. But what they haven't done is go under oath. 
with that. And Mike Pence did. He testified before a grand jury. Um, that is astounding. Mm-hmm. And I will he talk about it? I mean, hmm. he probably should if he wants to differentiate himself. Um, he's not there's he's not going to get the support of people who are hardcore Trump people. He is not going to get the support of people who are just exhausted with everything that happened and are just ready for anything that is not named Trump. Um, but he could tell a compelling story. Um, and you know, we got a whiff of that in his memoir that he published uh, this past November. Um, but not much. Mm. And he could do that. I don't know that he will. Um, but I mean, if you want to differentiate yourself in the field, that's probably the way to do it. Well, some of the candidates, uh, just in closing, Tom, at the Iowa roast and ride over the weekend, you know, Nikki Haley and others sort of, well, they criticized Trump for for <laughs> his reaching out and praising Kim Jong-un for North Korea getting a seat on the UN Council, which on the UN World Health Organization Council, I think it was, which is in itself un- <laughs> inexcusable, <laughs> but praising the uh, North Korean dictator as Trump is wont to do, they sort of tut-tutted and said that how terrible that is. I think Pence might have said something as well, I'm not sure. But mm-hmm. again, that's pretty mild stuff. Um, I'm just waiting for the <laughs> real stuff to happen and you think it might happen just in closing could it could happen and and you know one point i would make from there too uh, they did not say trump's name inside the the actual barn where this where the speeches were being held they said that outside when they were doing press interviews so they weren't really talking directly to the crowd with that to to give you a sense of the continuing tepidness on this um so i mean (laughs) You know, maybe it's like, you know, some of it seems to be the same strategy for the last eight years, just hoping Trump will vanish. Um, that could happen, but it hasn't really worked for the last eight years. I mean, the guy told his people, the former president of the United States for months, told his people, his supporters, that there was a, allegedly a stolen election, that Italian defense satellites hacked into the voting machines right along with Chinese thermostats. Uh, he, he had his he had his office call. He had he was the deputy attorney general. We saw so much of this in the January six hearings. He had him call up the uh, the the Italian government to ask about this alleged thing, which may may or may not have happened, and it resulted in a historic attack, an insurrection. Uh, and it's to me at least, I don't see how you look past that. Even if you are in a party where, you know, a sizable number will say that they still believe that the election was stolen in 2020. And I'm not sure that uh, that you can get past that. Um, and it creates this opening for people who are either new, um, had nothing to do with it, or potentially are ready to take it head on in, in Pence's case. I mean, he is the one candidate in this field that has the most unique perch to actually take it head on. Uh, If he does that, maybe it works. 
If he doesn't, I don't see how he gains anything by not doing it. Well, Tom LaBianca, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you, Ian. And again, I'll be speaking with Tom Lobianco, who is a national politics reporter at The Messenger covering the 2024 presidential race. He has covered Mike Pence from the State House to the White House for Business Insider, the Associated Press, CNN, and the Indianapolis Star. And he's the author of Piety and Power, Mike Pence and the Taking of the White House. We're going to take a brief station break and back exploring the global authoritarian drift away from democracy as far-right leaders in Poland, Hungary, Turkey, and India take over the media, eviscerates the courts, and demonize the opposition. Mother, should I run for president? Mother, should I trust the government? Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now, Jan Kubik, who's a professor of political science at Rutgers University and a professor in the School of Slavonic and East European Studies. Welcome to Background Briefing, Jan Kubik. Thank you. Very happy to be with you again. Well, thanks for joining us, Ian. And what do you make of the, the demonstrations that took place over the weekend, massive demonstrations in mostly in Warsaw, but in other Polish cities against the right-wing government? Uh, crowds are estimated at half a million, half a billion, 500,000 in Warsaw alone. And, of course, on top of that, you've got on Monday the European Union stepped up its judicial battle with Poland over its rule of law. And they confirmed, the EU confirmed that Warsaw had refused to comply with EU rules on judicial independence, and they so far been fining them up to 500 million euros. So it seems that pressure is building from within and without on this right-wing government. What's your sense? Um, well, you know, there, there is this idea that the pressure on this government needs to be coming from all possible directions. So uh, someone wrote some time ago, part of you know, it, it rhymes in Polish, but it doesn't rhyme in English, unfortunately. But, you know, it is both the street and the uh, European structures, uh, European authorities that are uh, need to take action. Uh, of course, in addition to the kind of regular political struggle in the parliament between the political parties and, and so on. So first, about my, my first reaction to this uh, march, to the events of yesterday, uh, is mixed. Yeah, and the mixed for, for the following reason. I've been studying protest politics for many, many years in Poland and elsewhere. And the, the key lesson I... I, I have learned is that the most critical uh, moment or issue or, or mechanism is uh, to translate the mo mobilization in the streets into a more sustained, more institutionalized action, some kind of stable, more or less stable, more or less predictable 
institutions, you know, institutionalized movements that will stay in the fight for a longer period of time. Poland is exceptionally, or Poles are exceptionally good at mobilizing and coming to the streets and demonstrating what they want. By the way, on both sides, both liberal side and, well, let's call it illiberal or whatever, more right-wing. This time it was incredibly impressive. And some people are saying this might have been the biggest street mobilization demonstration since you know, the fall of communism, or certainly one of them. So that's very positive. But my my other other part of myself is, is a little bit negative. In in I mean, you know, more pessimistic. Uh, what 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 is going to happen next is the key question. Will this energy translate into sustained mobilization that will carry the liberal side all the way to the elections in the fall. And that I am not sure, because in the past, unfortunately, the, the, the street energy was somewhat wasted, uh, partially because the opposition is not united sufficiently. And right, and, and, but the, but the government controls. It's just like the same in Poland and in other other states like Turkey, where you get these authoritarian governments that take over the judiciary, and more importantly, take over the media. So, you, in Poland, you have the state TV media basically mischaracterizing or, or showing the demonstrations. First of all, playing down the numbers, saying there are only about 100,000 people, and they use clips of fringe groups voicing, you know, obscenities, particularly against the Roman Catholic Church, which is a favorite theme of the of this conservative government to paint the uh, their opponents as as being anti-Catholic. So that's a powerful tool. And what sort of tools do the left have? both in Poland and Hungary, to fight against this uh, state control? Well, the situation in Hungary and Poland are completely different. Uh, this is true that the state, the government, took over the public television and renamed it the national television, but they are not the most watched TV news station in the country. There are two independent stations, uh, you don't have it in Hungary, that are uh, watched by more people than the governmental uh, television. Uh, radio has a lot of stations that are independent, and there's independent press. Two most important publications, the daily, one daily and one weekly, the most popular ones, the mostly read, are independent. So the, the better description of the situation in Poland is a culture war. It is a confrontation which is roughly 50-50 at this point. And if I, you know, it is very imprecise to put numbers on it, but in Hungary it is more like 70-30, and 70 is the government. So Poland is not there yet. And you know, my belief after studying Central Europe for whatever, more than a quarter of a century, much more, is that it is not going to work. They're not going to win in Poland. You know, the only thing they can do is to keep 
muddling through in this sort of, uh, you know, 50-50 situation, which they're winning elections by very small margins, uh, you know, eventually they will lose. Um, but yes, on on the other hand, you're right. This this is uh, uh, particularly older people, particularly less educated, particularly outside of major urban centers watch governmental national television, and that, that general and the Catholic Church is on their side, right? So this kind of Catholic governmental block, which it ranges from conservative to pretty far right. Uh, yeah, this is, you know, they do not win even the majority of the votes. They never, they, ne they have never won the majority, but they are sufficiently strong. You know, I just looked at the numbers yesterday. The, they poll, the, the, the party, uh, Law and Justice, is polling at about 32, 34%. And there's one more party uh, confederation, which is a nasty kind of semi-fascist organization that gets from, it depends, it fluctuates from L8 to 12. So they together will get to 40-something, right? So if the other side, the liberal side, and it's not just the left, it's, it's more like the left center, and it's a lot of kind of classical conservatives, you know, the centrist conservatives, who want to who don't want to have anything to do with with the far right? Uh, they, in terms of numbers, they should be able to win, but unfortunately, they mm, cannot somehow find the common denominator politically, because because they range from the left, you know, the actual social democrats say, to say centrist conservatives, you know, and it's very hard to put together a coalition. But what seems to have sparked this big demonstration over the weekend with 500,000 people showing up in Warsaw is this legislation that was recently passed through Parliament by the Law and Justice ruling party that basically can call anybody an agent of Russian influence. And of course, obviously, uh, there's a heightened fear of Russia because of what's happening next door in Ukraine. But the opposition see this new law, and so does the EU, as a way to basically smear any politician that's critical of the government party and to taint them with this anti-Russian ploy. And at the same time, you know, they've used this accusation of being a, a Russian agent. They even use it against Lech Walesa, who yeah. was a former president, and he was prominent at the demonstrations yesterday, was he not? He, he was quite prominent. He gave one of the main speeches. Um, but yes, this, this law uh, creates uh, something that perhaps is best described as the extrajudicial uh, body that pretends to be legal, but it really is created outside of the system of justice outside of the, you know, what you would recognize as an institution or body belonging to the the judiciary, judiciary system, or certainly not, doesn't belong to the judicial branch of the government. In other words, the, the, you know, if you're accused of this collaboration, 
very vaguely defined with the the Russians, uh, you have no recourse, basically. You know, it is a bit of a, it's a, a bit of a, I don't know if they realize that this is how, uh, you know, uh, systems of so-called justice work in non-democratic countries. This was how the fascists or the Nazis were doing that. This is certainly how the communists were doing that, right? So th they, they should know better, but because they know better and they're doing that, uh, everybody, including myself, suspects that this is directed as a specific group of people, particularly Donald Tusk, the leader of the opposition, and they are afraid of his possible success, obviously. So they have created a, an, a mechanism, an institution that will allow them to basically push him out of politics. Right? And, and it is incredibly vague. It is incredibly, uh, it, is, it is simply set up in the way that it doesn't conform to any serious uh, judicial standard of a democratic country. You, you, you basically have no opportunity. I mean, suppose they say that you will be able to appeal the decision and so on, but it is all incredibly vague. And it is really a propaganda machine uh, more than a legal mechanism. But how do they get away with smearing Lech Walensky as, as being pro-communist and being an agent of the Russians? I mean, it, there must be, obviously, within Poland itself, a lot of anti-Russian feeling for this to work. But Lech Walesa led solidarity and brought about the end of communism. So I, I just don't understand how this government can get away with that. This is the mystery that you know keeps keeps my, my foot on my on, 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 on my table because this is my job and many people are trying to figure it out. I've been writing about it for a while. It is somewhat mysterious, but roughly here's what happened. Uh, like in many other countries, including the United States, including you know Britain. Uh, I was during the pre-Brexit debates, still living in London, uh, including, as you mentioned, Turkey, Hungary, you know, India with Modi uh, and so on. Uh, recently, it took some time. Uh, what happened is that many people, for both economic and non-economic reasons, stopped believing and started doubting whether the existing system, which they perceive as dominated by liberals, broadly understood, like, you know, post-enlightenment liberalism, sometimes of left, sometimes of right, by the basic ideas of uh, individual rights, social justice, uh, equality, universalism, and so on, that that system doesn't work, right? That they do not move forward with their lives. Perhaps most importantly, they do not understand what is happening in the world that is incre increasingly globalized. They just lose the, the sense, the meaning of it all. And you have the rise of those right-wing, far-right-wing often parties, including, you know, sometimes I guess we increasingly can be justified calling them neo fascist or something like that, that like in the Europe of the 20s and 30s, promise 
that they will take care of things, that they will take over the economy. The economy becomes much more, uh, you know, state-run, less market-oriented. They do that. They take over enterprises. They it's, it some way resembles old uh, communist economies to some degree. They also, but most importantly, they they give people um, the sense of pride in their nation, in their religion. They remove uh, a solid chunk of, of people's anxiety. You know, people feel better if they're every week in the church. The church talks to them about their, the greatness of their nation, uh, of their uniqueness, of, of the fact that they are either the heroes or the victims of history. And, you know, this bad West and the best bad liberals are, are trying to take it away from them. And that, you know, ob observe that that generates around the world roughly, you know, 30 to 40 percent of support. Right. Yeah. Your, your question is equally valid to ask, you know, what is happening in, in the United States with those levels of support for Donald Trump. And, is, and for Ron DeSantis, because he's running on the anti-woke platform, yeah, is he not? The, yeah. And, you know, when you unpack the, you know, this anti-wokeism, you know, woke, what does woke mean? Woke means that you are saying that you are going to respect people regardless of their sexual orientation, of their race, of their ethnicity, that we are all, you know, uh, humans, and the only framework within which we should function validly is the framework of mutual respect and universal human rights, right? And tolerance. This is what yeah. tolerance, yes, mm. and certain degree of individualism and so on. Uh, this rebellion, which you see in several places, including Poland, is against those things. Right. And, you know, when you talk to these people, I mean, I've spent now a lot of time, you know, doing my own research, reading other people's uh, research, this constantly repeats itself. Also, there is a growing number of people who uh, think, including, unfortunately, also a, a, a certain number of young people who start thinking, well, you know, this liberal democracy, liberal meaning, you know, the, the rule of law, so the rule of majority constrained by the rule of law, right? the simplest description of liberal democracy, that that kind of doesn't work. And therefore, why not if we have a, a strong ruler or leader who will not be constrained by all those uh, rules, regulations, you know, typical liberal sort of methods of creating uh, accountability, right? right? Making sure that the power uh, doesn't, that it is not excessive, right? it is constrained by the law and, and so on. All of this that for many years we thought was something that, you know, it was accepted in the Western world, broadly understood, and we don't need to be uh, worrying about it anymore, right? We can move on. It's gone. This The sense that this system has become sort of normal, natural, is gone. It is not anymore. Hmm. Well, it isn't, that, it isn't. That's what's happening in Poland. You know, Poland is not a, a poor country anymore. Hmm. Uh, it was until about 2014, 15, still to some, you know, the most successful economically 
post-communist country, right? It was the first country that was declared, you know, in in in, in by certain uh, institutions that look at those things as the developed market economy, no longer developing market economy, but develop. Mm-hmm. You know, part of the story, no, no doubt, is the growing wealth disparity, uh, inequality, which is the story of the whole world, again, of the last sure. whatever, 30, 40 years. No doubt, it is a part of the story. So, you know, you, you see those, uh, if you have a job and, and you can hardly, uh, you know, make uh, ends meet uh, at the end of the month, and and you see, you know, the world around you in gated communities or whatever, where where there are riches that are completely unimaginable for you, of course, you get angry also. Right. And you take out your anger, anger on the wrong people, which we've seen before in history. I thank you for joining us, Jan. I appreciate the the way you've tied this into so many other countries, not just Poland, but but also Hungary, uh, Turkey, uh, India, and of course here in the United States with Donald Trump yeah. and Ron DeSantis. I appreciate you for joining us here today, Jan. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. And again, I've been speaking with Jan Kubik, who's a professor of political science at Rutgers University and a professor in the School of Slavonic and East European Studies at University College in London. His books include The Power of Symbols Against the Symbols of Power, Post-Communism from Within, Social Justice, Mobilization and Hegemony, and 20 Years After Communism, The Politics of Memory and Commemoration. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon and assistant producer Evan Green to help us sustain this program into the future and ensure it remains free to all. Please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you've missed any of today's programs or would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcast, and we encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing. Bye for now.